Let's take our Bibles this evening to Psalm 15. Let's return back to Psalm 15, which we were looking at last week. We introduced Psalm 15 and entitled our sermon together as the great question, or the ultimate question, Psalm 15, the ultimate question. So now we return to complete this Bible study and also to complete our study in the Psalms for this season, if you will. We enjoy, uh, at least I have enjoyed, coming into these summer months and calling them summer in the Psalms. It's been a, just a nice change of pace. It's been a fruitful study in a different genre of literature and the scriptures and uh, taking God's word and enjoying it like a feast for the different types of uniquenesses and intricacies that it is and uh, letting it minister to our soul. And the Psalms is certainly that. It's the greatest book, in my opinion, in all the Bible. It is the most unique uh, book in all the Bible. It is like the Mount Everest of the scriptures. It gives breath and words to our liturgy, to our songs, to our prayers. It gives expression to grief. It gives expression to praise. It gives expression to lament. It gives expression to just in that you name it, uh, to all the emotions of the Christian life. So this will be our last message in the book of Psalms as we close it for this season. So we return to Psalm 15. Join me there, beginning in verse 1, as we lay the groundwork. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Lord, who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. But he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the word of the Lord. We came last week and introduced Psalm 15, recognizing that this is an important question. In fact, it is the ultimate question that we find in Scripture. It's similar to Psalm 24, 68, 87, and 105 in its rhetorical language, questions that are being asked of Yahweh. Important questions like who can worship the Lord and, and who can come into His presence. It's in this psalm that we find that David, in a very similar way to the Lord, or the Lord in a very similar way to David, expresses and outlines the, the Sermon on the Mount in a very almost sequential way. The main idea of Psalm 15 is that David describes the moral character, the moral integrity of the person who worships God, the personal holiness of the man or the woman who comes before the Lord. We saw how this psalm, or at least for our purposes, we're outlining this psalm in three key ways. Number one, the question. The greater body of our time will be spent on number two, the answer. And then number three, the promise. And so just by way of onboarding and catching up, number one, let's review the question that we looked at last week. And the question is twofold. We saw it's asked two key things. Who may approach God and who may abide with God? David says, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle or who may be your guest? 
Who, who may come and be with you and sit with you for a dinner in common vernacular? Who may be a house guest with you, O God, in your tabernacle? And then secondly, who may abide with you? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Who can be a part of your, your intimate family? Who can come and, and not only be your guest, but who can come and be in your presence continually? One commentator, as we saw last week, says it's as if David is sitting to the side or maybe sitting on, in his castle and he's sitting on a balcony and he's watching worshipers go to the, to the place of worship where the newly established Ark of the Lord is. And humorously, it's as, as if David is saying, well, there's, there's, there's Sally, there's Bob. How are they able to go and worship the Lord? I'm trying to be funny here. Who? And then he, he's watching. He's watching the stream of his people to not be funny. He's just simply watching the, the, his people. But to get funny, he's watching people that he knows. And he's saying, hmm, that's interesting. More importantly, it leads him to ask these questions that lead him to look inwardly. Instead of looking outwardly, he's looking inwardly. And he's asking these questions. Who may enjoy communion with God? Who may worship him? Who may have intimate affection with God. So the great question, an important question, a question for us to consider today in 2023, who can have a right relationship with God? We often talk about wanting the presence of God. We certainly want his presence, but what we do not want is his unmediated presence. We want a, a mediator uh, representing us. And we know here at Grace Church, we preach Jesus, we preach Christ. That, that mediator is the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want the presence of God without Christ. It is a, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living and holy God. It is a fearful thing. So David answers his own question. Number one, the question. Number two, the answer. We see that in verses two through four, the answer. We see a sixfold description of the character, the attributes that describe the, the walk, the words, the words of a person who are really the composite of a a man of integrity, a holy man, a man who is a worshiper, we would say. In one commentary that I was looking at from last week, I did not understand, know this last week, but I've discovered from last week to this week, said that, whereas last week I said he gives us six couplets of 12 things. In the original Hebrew, one commentator said this is actually a total of 10 things, and it mirrors the Ten Commandments, the law of God. And I thought that was helpful to me and revelatory because there are themes of God's righteous standard here. Who can, who can stand up to this standard, we ask? And that's a good thing for us to feel. That standard of God's righteous and holy law, giving this description. And we also see themes of the Sermon on the Mount here as well. Well, first off, in this answer, we saw his character described, verse 2. He, who is it? Well, it's he who walks uprightly. A walk of a person is their direction, their lifestyle, the cumulative effect of, we would say, the whole of their practice, their habits, their being. He who walks uprightly. This word upright means whole or sound. This blameless man, this righteous man, is one whose character is morally well-rounded. And then in verse 2, we see there that his character is further amplified. He who walks uprightly and he who works righteousness. The fruit of his life is one that matches 
his profession. You could say it like this, his, his profession and his possession, they match. He is a righteous man and he works righteousness. This moral integrity expresses itself in right actions that pursue what is right in the eyes of God. Or as we also took time to amplify, because there seems to be a theme here in our sermons on Sunday morning, last Sunday morning in Matthew 15 and being here in Psalm 15, we could say, summarize it by saying, right, what does it mean to work righteousness? Practical application point to be obedient to what you know to be true as revealed in Scripture. To follow the Lord. As Adrian Rogers I got to hear him say right before he died when I was a college student, one of his last messages he preached over at First Baptist Church of Sevierville. I just remember this phrase. It just said, light obeyed means God gives you more light. You obey the light you have. Walking in the light, the Lord is pleased to give you more light. Well, the righteous man obeys God. He obeys what he knows. He may not be all that he should be as of this moment, but he's, on the, he's following the Lord. He's being led of the Spirit. The Lord is still working on him. Matthew 5, 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He's a man of integrity. Some of you, you, you like math. If I were to say the term integer, you, you would understand immediately what I mean. The, it, the root word of integrity is, is this math term, integer. What is an integer? It's a whole number. It's not a fraction. There's a wholeness to this man. He, he, there's a simplicity to this man. He's not double. He's not a hypocrite. And that leads to the second part of the answer, verses 2 and 3, in not only his character but his conversations. And here David moves into the realm of tongue and words. This man's righteousness, he works righteousness, is revealed first and foremost through his words or his tongue. Verse 2, he speaks the truth in his heart. And the implication here is if the truth is on the heart level, what's in the heart comes out, right? We saw that last week. What defiles the man, it's what flows out of the heart. And so what's in the heart of this man is the truth. The truth is, is being inculcated there. The truth is being put in. It's, it's renewing. It's transforming. And this man speaks the truth in his heart. And so therefore he speaks truth to his neighbor. This man is a truthful man. He does not backbite with his tongue. Verse 2, nor does he do evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. So here David, as we saw, positively points to what he does and then negatively points to what he doesn't do. Positively here, he speaks the truth in his heart. This man is without guile. This man presents truth that is consistent with reality. Are you feeling condemned yet? Do you ever feel the weight of your tongue that doesn't just give the truth and its absolute truthfulness and purity? Well, I can stand before you as your pastor regularly condemned by the Spirit of God at, at trying to shade things as the Lord convicts me of saying, wait a second, was that the truth? Was that the bare bones truth? Oh, to be able to flesh out the truthfulness of our salvation, but be able to be able to not feel so insecure to where we have to shade things to our favor and to the disadvantage of others. Oh, to be so secure in the gospel, rooted in the gospel, 
that we can live freely, walking in the light as He is in the light, without needing to affect or to shade people's thinking and shifting the scales to our side through innuendo. This man speaks the truth in his heart. This is what he positively does. And because of that, he is not hypocritical. He is truthful. We saw Sunday, um, we're not going to recount all the scriptures, but just 29, Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord grows sick of people, his people, who honor with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Not only does God despise hypocritical worship, but we saw Sunday that Christ despises hypocritical worship. Matthew 12, 34, Matthew 15, he talks about the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. But the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. Matthew 15, 8, these people, the, the, the hypocrites, draw near to them, to Christ with their mouth, but they are far from him in their heart. So this man... It's not those things. This man delights in the truth. Psalm 1 language, Psalm 1 verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. What is the effect, friends? What is the effect, Grace Church, when we are controlled by the truth? It's a beautiful thing, by the way. Well, let's consider it just for a moment. What is the effect of being absolutely controlled and saturated by the truth? Well, one of the things is that it's absolutely freeing. There's a simplicity to life. We, we, we are single-minded and not double-minded. We are single-tongued and not double-tongued. We are single-faced and not double-faced. Positively, this man speaks the truth in his heart. Negatively, what does he not do? Well, verse 3, we begin to see this description. He does not slander. Because he's rooted in the truth, because his righteousness and his identification comes from an alien righteousness that is outside of him, this man doesn't have to slander. He, he doesn't have to tear down others so that he can then be lifted up. Notice with me in the text, he does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor. So this man is a man of truth. When he comes before the Lord, there's a right representation. He is not coming before the Lord in a, in a pseudo-truth, but he's harmed his neighbor. He has slandered his neighbor Monday through, through Friday, if you will, in his own time. And then he's projecting an image of being a truthful worshiper. Notice what he doesn't do. He does not attack others maliciously with his mouth. He does not backbite with his tongue. Verse 3, he does not backbite. That means literally slander. The root word there is to go about on foot. Maybe we would say in modern vernacular the salesman is, is beating the pavement. He's going door to door. He's getting after it. That would be a positive metaphor here. Negatively, this man does not beat the pavement seeking to backbite his neighbor or his friend or etc. He doesn't backbite with his tongue. Verse 3, he, he doesn't seek evil. That means ill intent or to intentionally harm. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 11, Paul giving instruction to Timothy regarding the widows of the church. This is not to pick on the widows by any means or the women, but women's sins are just as bad as men's sins, and men's sins are just as bad as women's sins. The context here is not to pick on women or widows, but the, it's an example here. So notice here how Paul describes it. But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because... 
they have cast off their first faith. Verse 13, and besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not to say. Verse 13 of 1 Timothy 5 gives us that metaphor, a scriptural example of what this root word means. And not going from house to house, this idea of backbiting and evilness is not found. This man minds his own business. He seeks peace. In fact, when we think about this is the world we live in, isn't it? Every person in this room has experienced some measure of maybe slander being brought against you, and you find out about it later. Uh, some type of evil being taken out against you. And friends, you're in good company. The finest saints in all of the Bible have experienced the harm of this, beginning with the Lord himself. Joseph, as you think about the earthly stepfather of Jesus, Joseph was concerned. Remember, the Bible describes Joseph as a what kind of man? A righteous man. What does that look like? Joseph was concerned about Mary, and he wanted to handle these things carefully and privately, operating on very limited very limited knowledge, Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. When you've experienced evil, when you've experienced slander, listen, welcome to the brotherhood of the redeemed who've stood faithful to the gospel. Job himself in Job 17, verse 6, described his affliction not only as physical, but part of the greater part of his affliction was what people were saying about his affliction. He mentions that he was a byword on the lips of people. The Lord himself was gossiped about in Matthew chapter 9, verse 10, as he began to eat with publicans and show the love of Christ to those and letting them know that he's bringing salvation to them. He was accused of being a demon, or excuse me, possessed with a demon, a drunkard, and a glutton. We could go through a long list. I just wanted to strengthen you and encourage you on this point. First off, this is what the righteous man does not do. All of us have experienced the pain of this, and so may we love our neighbor, friends, as as we love ourselves in this particular way. And every time we're tempted to give in to this, may we remember the pain that we have felt. In fact, I would remind all of us that there's a key idea here is that a person is never more like the devil than when he verbally seeks to slander and tear down wickedly another person. Satan, the very name of the devil, means slanderer. It's not only what he does, it's, it's who he is. So may the Lord help us. If we desire to come before the Almighty, if we desire to come before the presence of God, not be those who are in form, acting one way, but in reality, doing another. Profession, again, the, the, the connection between profession and possession. And may God give grace to us all. Amen? May we see our sin and repent of our sin and seek the Lord while He may be found and seek grace. In fact, 1 John gives this as a test of salvation. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brothers. He that loves not his brother abides in death. Well, back to our text here, Matthew 15, Psalm 15. <laughs> Matthew 15, Psalm 15, we're in the 15s, right? Verse 3, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor. Thirdly, what else does he not do? Nor does he take up the reproach, he does not receive a reproach, against his friend. He does not readily, this righteous man, does not readily receive the gossip. It goes both ways. First off, he doesn't do it himself, but he doesn't quickly be the hearer of it. He doesn't look for it. He, he, there's a default setting upon the righteous man. I think it'd be good for all of us to remember this. 
that the default setting for us in the church is to believe the best about each other. Remember, all of us, love covers a multitude of sins, doesn't it? Listen here, the psalmist is a genuine worshiper. He defends those who would seek to maliciously hurt and tear down those that he loves, those that are his brothers and sisters in Christ. Some people pride themselves that they do not gossip, but the problem is, is they love to hear the gossip. Here, this man does not even take it. So, Legrand, you're sounding so sterile. Uh, what do you do? You can go get some water, baby, if you need it. I know you're struggling. Go, feel free if you need to. Okay. Thank y'all. Anyway, we've been coughing a lot in the, in the Lamb household. What does he do? Well, how do, how, do we, how do we deal with it? How we deal with it is, are we talking about truth here? Is there something, do we need to be a witness to something? I think one of the first questions we could ask of anyone is to simply say, have you gone to that person yourself? Here, I need to talk to you about so-and-so. Whoa, 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 whoa. Have you, Matthew 18, have, have you dealt with this yourself? And oftentimes you'll nip a lot of things in the bud right there by just simply encouraging the person to go directly to the other person that is most directly involved. The next thing we see beginning in verse 4 is this man's company. Who does he hang around? Who are his, his friends? Who are those who are identified with him? This true worshiper in terms of the people that he walks with or that he rejects or that he accepts. Well, verse 4 tells us that he rejects the evil man. He rejects reprobates. This does not mean he doesn't share the gospel in our new covenant uh, mindset or, or concept, but rather this man is not one who is to be walking with the vile, the blasphemer. His friends, as many Christians love to, listen, there are pastors today who are cursing pastors. They're so trying to be on the cutting edge and to be so hip and relevant that they delight in articulating for them, you know, to their people how cool they are. And they would go so far as to be crass and bold and, and that type of thing. Well, this man is not that. This man actually rejects reprobates. He's not a pastor. I was describing for you those pastors. They've been known to even play like ACDC in their church on Easter Sunday to be relative to the vile, evil man. Hey, friends, we can preach the gospel and not play ACDC. I'm being extreme. I'm trying to make some points here. Again, I know it's midweek, but yeah, whatever. Okay. So trust me this stuff exists look look the most loving thing we can do is preach the truth the most loving thing we can do is preach the gospel but don't fall under this banner and so many ways we could say this and i want to stay on track uh, for sure but don't fall under this banner that we have to truly love people by becoming like them that's that's actually you're missing the point but yet so many christians today in their mind that's being faithful to jesus now listen, let's, let's, let's not, listen, <laughs> listen, we are to called to take the gospel to the lost, but we're not called to be like the lost to make the gospel more powerful. The gospel is powerful in itself. The gospel has all power. I don't have to adopt the, the sins of the world or the vilenesses of the world in order to reach the world. I'm not concerned about being cool, and we should not be concerned about being cool in the eyes of of the world. In fact, when we're just like the world, we offer the world nothing of salvation. We're just like them. Why, why would they? Why? And, and it leads to a point, and this is where I'm starting to get off track. It leads to a point that I said Sunday, why do so many people come into so many churches and they just think, I don't need this? I don't know. 
But I would like to think this, if people walk into Grace Church, they say, wow, this church is different <laughs> in a good way. Like, this is not like every other church I've ever been in. I would like for them to walk in and say, who's this Jesus or who's this God? And I'm not used to hearing this. Most churches are tripping over themselves uh, to make me feel whatever. We, we certainly want to be welcoming. We certainly want to be hospitable, and we are. I, 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 I praise you for that grace. Regularly, that is the comment of our visitors. But, but let's not get lost in, in what, it all, what it's all about. This man, verse 4, rejects those who hate God. The idea here is that he does not let the wicked man influence him. He despises the vile man. This word vile means a man who is worthless, morally depraved, dirty. So the genuine worshiper, the genuine seeker of God, child of God, doesn't hate the sinner. He, he loves the sinner enough to speak truth to him, maybe to have a lunch with him, maybe to do certain things to try to reach him. But what he is not doing is allowing himself to stay under the sphere of influence of the ungodly. Let's remind ourselves of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Some people are so holy, they never ever are able to get in the realm of sharing the gospel. Does that make sense? They're, they're so removed from society, and that's another error. That's not what we've been called to do. We're, we're a city on a hill. We're a city that is meant to reach the lost, but at the same time, we're not called to simply forsake and abandon the church, forsake the righteous in the, under the banner of simply reaching the evil man, becoming like the evil man. I think we all know where that leads. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived, Paul says. Evil company corrupts good manners or good habits. 1 Corinthians 5.6, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Let's remind ourselves, church, that we have a fallen flesh. We, have a, we are in flesh that is not fully glorified. We are living in a sphere where the presence of sin is here. And if we surround ourselves with all of the old habits of the old man, do not be surprised when we our, find ourselves in the prodigal son in the very depths of the bottom of the bottom feeling the full weight of that lull, that pull back into the things of the world. So the true worshiper here, as it's described by David here, must reject all that is false and evil, not only in his own life, but specifically in those that are vile, who hate God, who reject, who reject God. And so while he rejects the reprobate, notice verse 4, he reveres believers, but he honors those who fear the Lord. This man affirms and associates those who love the Lord. He honors those who love the Lord. Who are your closest friends, church, in this life? It's the brotherhood and sisterhood here at Grace. It's those that you also know they may go to other churches, but they confess Christ as Lord and Savior. It's those that their spirit bears witness with your spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. This man honors those who fear the Lord. It's what makes the Ruths pledge their lives to the Naomi's when the world's thinking, like, what are you doing? That goes against all conventional wisdom. But this is the brotherhood of Christ. Paul writes in Galatians 6, verse 10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men. Notice here, but especially those to, who are of the household of faith. So I've got a word of admonition here, church, for us. If we're going to make application, all theology is local church theology in this age, right? So many of us will find ourselves saying, Lord, use me. 
Lord, I want to be used to, of you to be your hands and your feet. And you may be very good at reaching those that you work with. You may be very good at of helping those that you're related to. But what about those within this church? What about those within the household of faith? Again, as Paul says, Galatians 6 verse 10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, key word there, the opportunities that LeGrand Lamb has may not be the opportunities that you have. And the opportunities that you have may not be the opportunities that I have. But I'll tell you this. There, in the language of Paul, uh, 6 verse 10, Therefore, as we all have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. What Paul is saying is, is this is our bent, this is our heart, but Lord, give me attention to notice those within my sphere, under this, I'm, I'm using sphere because we're in a building, but we're a body. And so as we see each other on Sundays, we're in Sunday school class. By the way, don't waste the Sunday school class opportunity, church. And as you're in that more smaller gathering, you're going to have conversations. You're going to become attuned to the needs of God's people. Don't waste that and ask the Lord to lead you and to guide you. The next thing that we see in this answer is the, the man's commitments. The godly man's commitments are described in verse 4. In what way? Well, he who swears to his and this is overwhelming. This is unbelievable. He who swears to his own hurt and he does not change. What, 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 what's the text mean here? What is he saying? Well, it's this man stands, verse 4, he stands on his word. He says what he says and he means what he says. This goes back to the simplicity of wholeness of integrity. There's a simplicity to living in a, a life of integrity. Your yea is yea, as Jesus says. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. He swears to his own hurt. He makes his word, and he stands upon his word, and he does not change. In fact, he suffers for his word. We see this man at times may suffer in some ways for things that he says, but he's not going to be duplicitous. And he also may suffer financially if he makes a commitment, and yet he finds out later that that's actually going to hurt him. So this is a person who keeps his word, his oaths, you could say. G.K. Chesterton says it in a unique way. He says, a promise is an appointment that you make with yourself. It's an appointment you make with yourself for the future. You say, I will be there, and you are there. There's a simplicity to life. Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God, and everything else finds its, its proper application and its, its proper place. The godly man maintains the integrity of his word. He stands for what he says he will do, regardless of pressure that may come. Do you realize how hard this is, by the way? I, I want this to be hard. It crushes me. So if you're sitting there thinking, LeGrand, wow, I mean, you're being hard on us this evening. No, 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 no. The word of God is crushing us this evening. The word of God is doing what the word of God does. The word of God converts the soul. The word of God, the law is a schoolmaster which puts us to a point of desperation that says, look to Christ, for he is the only one who can meet this standard. But yet, God's standard doesn't lessen for sinful men. And this man keeps his word even when it means financial loss for him or some type of inconvenience for him. You could put it like this. The term I've come up with just in ministry experience in the past is he's an absorber. We need absorbers today. We need men and women who are absorbers. They take personal affliction. They take personal inconvenience. They take, whether it's dealing with people or whether it's dealing with a circumstance, that's typically the two most sanctifying things that God uses to sanctify us in our life. 
but this man absorbs it. And I don't mean to be jaded or masochistic or anything like that, but this man, by God's grace, keeps his word, does, not afraid to make promises and commitments, and he does what it takes to keep those things. And I think it's one of the problems in the church today is fear of missing out. People are hesitant to make commitments, to keep their word, because they don't want to go back on their word. And so let me just encourage us all to pray and seek the Lord, but, but to be people of our word, but not be afraid of commitment. In fact, sometimes we just need to say yes to this and let the chips fall where they may and figure out what is the most important thing that the Lord would be having us to do at a particular moment or, or season in our life. The last thing that David gives in this answer by answering his own question is by pointing to how the godly man uses his money. He doesn't bring before the Lord in, in vain worship his money, and yet in his realm of dealing with men, so this is where the law of God is kind of in the back shadows of this whole text. If you think about the Ten Commandments, uh, the first six deal with our relationship towards God, and the last four deal with our relationship towards man. So this man is not thinking about his relationship towards God in, 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 a, in a hypocritical way, but then mistreating his fellow man in another way, or to simplistically put it, as Jesus describes in Matthew's gospel, the summary of the law and the prophets is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love our neighbor as ourself. That's what is at root here. This man's not coming to be a worshiper for the Lord and giving to the Lord his money, which he's abused his neighbor for at gross usury. Verse 5, notice the description here. He lends his money out without interest in usury. Now, I want to give a key qualifier. We're not about to do a deep dive study into what's, what's, what uh, is okay and not okay, but I want to make clear this is not talking about just common everyday banking pra practice as we know. You say, what's a quick reference? Well, Jesus in the parables wholesomely gives uh, favorable uh, parables describing wise stewardship, those who take what the Lord has given to them following basic everyday wisdom and practice What's being talked about here is, is something very specific. We've got to go back into the Old Testament context. This man does not violate God's law. Well, what is God's law? Well, if you, would, if you want to, turn with me to Exodus 22, 25. Exodus 22, 25. God gave specific instructions to his people to not take advantage of each other. When a brother, a fellow Israelite, was in poverty or experienced some type of trial or circumstance, a fellow, uh, an Israelite was not to take advantage of his brother by not only giving him bread or food, but with interest or usury. In other words, we would call it today maybe modern vernacular loan sharks, right? People who are giving the promise of relief when what are they doing? There's a pseudo-advertisement of we'll help you, but they're preying upon people who, who, who are, in other words, their help is keeping the people enslaved. That's a very different thing than basic economic practice that Jesus commends in the Gospels. Exodus twenty two twenty five. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him, or in modern day vernacular, a loan shark. You shall not charge him interest. Leviticus, turn there with me, Levit Leviticus 25 Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus 25, 36, Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God. 
that your brother may live with you. Verse 37, you shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. I am the Lord your God. So God gives the command and then he tells them, remember that I saved you, how I treated you. Verse 38 of Leviticus 25, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your, to be your God. And that's what Jesus is talking about. A, hypocritic use, a hypocritical use of money, of offering to the Lord what seems to be a pure offering. It's like the bank robber just to give a, you know, who robs, hurts his neighbor by robbing his neighbor and then takes a tenth of the proceeds and gives it back to the Lord. Listen, that's not, that's not, what, that's not what the Lord is prescribing for us to do. Well, going back to Psalm 15 as we round out our lesson for this evening. Verse 5, nor does he, what else does he not do? Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. This man... Has, does not have a price. This man cannot be bought. This man is not like the inner workings of politics and bankers and the upper echelons of people who just get it done with their, with their money. Uh, listen, every man, the modern wisdom says, has a price. And it's just figuring out what that price is and we'll sway this judge. Figure out what this price is and we'll sway this mayor figure out what the price is, and we'll figure out a way to get what we want done. Well, not so with this man. He does not put himself in compromising situations to where he is beholden or blackmailed because he has caved and caved on his integrity or his principles. He cannot be bought. Number one, we've seen the question Number two, the answer that is given, verses two through four. And lastly, number three, we see the promise here in verse five. He who does these things shall never be moved. Here in this promise, what we find is that this man who is rooted and grounded has an intimacy with God. The people who know their God shall be strong, bold, and do exploits. The righteous are bold like a lion. The pressure that comes their way, there's a boldness that is there that is not arrogance, but it's a boldness that's rooted in the fear of God. This man is intimate with God. This man is immovable because of this fear of God. He shall, verse 5, he shall never, never be moved. Just as practical application, we find ourselves in so many problem-solving situations in our lives, don't we? We need, we need help. We need the light and scripture of God's word. And when we find ourselves between friends and people, it's scenarios and things that we love and know. Sometimes we just don't know what to do. We feel like we are being moved, to be quite frank. We, we don't feel like the man who is not moved. We feel like the man who, who is being moved about. So what do we do? Well, just some quick practical application here in all problem solving just a reminder for us the question is never who is right that would be a personality based problem solving metric the question is is what is right and when we feel that pressure when we fear that swaying we simply look to God's word and as basic as this is and and I get that it's Wednesday just please do not miss this last point of application this gives such a freeing clarity to our lives. It's not who is right, it's what is right. He who is rooted in God 
has no fear of man. The fear of God removes all lesser fears, and you will be immovable in God. He shall never be moved. Well, how is that? Well, the authority source is not in who's most powerful at the moment. The millionaire may be sitting at the table, and he may be powerful in this moment, but he also may be dead the next. He's temporary. What is the, the, the pressure made from the bribe, as the analogy has been giving? It's, I'm not saying it's a sin to be a millionaire, so don't hear what I'm not saying. We're talking about this idea of being, context of being bought out. What never changes? The Word of God, which is the same yesterday, forever. The Lord Jesus Christ, which is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the man who tethers himself to the truth of Scripture and says, you know what, earthly speaking, this just seems to be a really hard situation. I, I just feel the pressure. I, I think, whoa, 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 what does, what does God's Word say? Ah, well, it's very clear. Well, I have to stand with God's Word. Thus says the Lord. Here I stand, Martin Luther. I, I, can't, I can't do any other. Uh, to go against conscience is not right or safe. What makes a Martin Luther, by the way? stand before the known powers of the day, ready to maybe lose his life? Well, certainly not personality. There's times we're weak as water. We can't even say no to our, our kids, you know. Who are we going to say no to, Caesar or Pharaoh? So if we're thinking about boldness in the... No, no, no. We have to anchor ourselves to the truth. Well, listen, this, this psalm, Psalm 15, only describes one person, and it's not us. Psalm 14 describes us. Just go back with me very quickly. We saw this last week. Psalm 14, or not last week, two weeks ago. Psalm 14 is the psalm that's about us. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, maybe you've not said that, but until you were born again, you were operating that way. There is none, they, they are corrupt. They have done uh, abominable works. There is none who does good. This is that natural state by which we were born in. We needed to be regenerated. We needed to be born again, church. And so God sent his son. There is only one who is the ultimate embodiment of Psalm 15, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 15 does not describe us in our natural state. It does not describe how we obtain favor with God or make him happy with us. In other words, as we're talking about Sunday, a works righteousness. If I do Psalm 15, then God will be happy with me. No, no, a thousand times no. Psalm 15 describes the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the perfect God-man, the man who came and lived perfectly for us, his, his people. He has justified us, and he has saved us. He has bought us. Romans 6, verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What Psalm 15 is describing is sanctification in the life of the believer because of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ who has justified us. And he is working that spirit of holiness within us, a spirit of holiness without which no man can see the Lord. One more time, Psalm 15 is not describing how we appease God or how we make ourselves right with God. For us, in 2023, right here at Grace Church, Psalm 15 is describing the fruit that the Spirit of God is working in the lives of His new creation. If you're not saved here this evening, and the Lord and the Holy Spirit has shown you that, look to Jesus. In fact, 
Don't kill me. I, I promise. This is last. Go to go to Psalm 24. This will be our last verse that we look at. Hey, we're closing the Psalms for the summer. Give me a little grace, okay? <laughs> Psalm 24. Instead of looking inward in the sense of trying to merit favor between you and God, let's close with Psalm 24. One of my favorite Psalms. Notice how Psalm 24, verse 3 says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. Now, lift up your heads, verse 7. This is what I want to leave you with. Lift up your heads, Grace Church. If you're downcast here this evening, if you're, if you're mired in the state of despondency and your sin, that's not a bad thing. The law crushes before it lifts up. And I want to encourage you, whether in need of salvation or need of strengthening in grace, lift up your heads, church. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, lift up your lift lift up everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. As David says in Psalm 16, the Lord is always set before me. So friends, look up to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our salvation and the author and finisher of our faith. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. And we thank you for how your word sets the record straight. Lord, it reforms us every single day. And it's why we need to get in it. It's why we need to look into the mirror of Scripture your word is food for famished ones. Your word gives life and it sustains our Christian life. And we thank you for it. Lord, I pray that if anyone here this evening has been awakened to the Spirit of God to see how they are crushed underneath this righteous standard, this ultimate question, who can come and dwell with you? Who can be in your presence? Would they look to Jesus and live? Would they look to Jesus and not their sin? Would they not dwell in despondency over their, their state or the situation, but would they run to Christ, our Lord and Savior, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer? Father, would you bless now your people as we leave this place, as we prepare for all that you have for us in the second half of the week? We lift up to you our time together on Friday, our men's breakfast, Lord, and we pray that it would be a fruitful time of study in your word. We lift up to you, Lord John Conforti, and the, the time that he will have here on Saturday with the repeat sessions of Grace Advance, Grace Equip downstairs, and we commit that to you. And Father, we look ahead to, towards the Lord's Day and pray that you would begin now to prepare all the ministry that will take place on that special day as we look with eyes of faith towards you. It's in your precious name we ask. Amen. The Lord bless